0: Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American posted on November 3rd, 2010. I'm Steve Mirsky. London, 1953. Scientists are on the verge of discovering what they call the secret of life, the DNA double helix. Providing the key is driven young physicist Rosalind Franklin. But if the double helix was the breakthrough of the 20th century, then what kept Franklin out of the history books? A play about ambition, Isolation and the Race for Greatness. That's on the program for a panel discussion about the new play Photograph 51 by Anna Ziegler. And that play is about Rosalind Franklin, Watson and Crick, and the search for the structure of DNA. I recorded the panel discussion and you'll hear part one of that in a moment. I just want to give you a little more background. The production is an effort of the Ensemble Studio Theater and the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. You may hear some reference to EST Sloan, and that's what they're talking about during the panel. Now, photograph 51 refers to a very important x-ray diffraction image that was key to the elucidation of the double helical structure. You're going to hear references to some individuals. In addition to Watson and Crick and Rosalind Franklin, there's Maurice Wilkins, as well as Ray Gosling, who was an assistant, a postdoc. You'll also hear reference to John Randall. Randall was the director of the department at King's College, where Rosalind Franklin and Maurice Wilkins worked. And over at the Cavendish, you had Watson and Crick. And also at Caltech in the States, you had Linus Pauling and his group, all in a race race to figure out the structure of DNA in the early 1950s. The moderator of the panel discussion that took place Tuesday night at the Julia Miles Theater here in New York is Stuart Firestein. He'll introduce the rest of the panelists.
1: This is Anna Ziegler, the uh, playwright of photograph 51. And as an award-winning uh, playwright, our plays also include Dove, and uh, Dov and Ali, BFF, and variations on a theme. Uh, they've been developed, many of her plays have been developed and produced at theaters around the world. She's currently working on an adaptation of Photograph 51 for Darren Aronofsky's company, Photozoa Pictures. She's a graduate of Yale, uh, and also holds an MFA from the Tisch School of the Arts at NYU, I right? Thank you, <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Helen Bowman. Uh, received her Ph.D. in chemistry in 1967 from the University of Pittsburgh, after 20 years at the Fox Chase Cancer Center, that's in Philadelphia, I believe, am I correct? She joined the faculty at Rutgers in New Brunswick, where she is now a Board of Governors professor of chemistry and chemical biology. Her research has centered on X-ray crystallographic studies of proteins and nucleic acids, so she's our expert on the panel tonight about that area. <clears throat> happy to hear applause for expertise. Um, (laughs) Dr. Berman is a strong advocate of data sharing. In 1971, she was co-founder of the Protein Data Bank, which is the single international archive of experimentally determined structures of proteins, nucleic acids, acids, and their complexes. And she will explain a great deal more about that to us tonight. In 1998, she became the director of the Research Collaboratory of Structural Bioinformatics, part of the Protein Data Bank. This is an incredible... um, and, and useful resource for the entire biological scientific community. Welcome, Dr. Lynn Osmond Elkin, who received her Ph.D. from UC Berkeley in 1973. She's uh, taught at California State University in Hayward, that's in the East Bay, right down the road from Berkeley, for 33 years, and now holds the title uh, Professor Emeritus of Biological Sciences. She has performed original archival um, An interview research about Rosalind Franklin and the double helix since 1997. She's written and lectured on the topic in the United States, in England, at universities, professional meetings, and award ceremonies for Franklin. Thank you. Thank you. And finally, Mr. Nicholas Wade. Nicholas is a science reporter for the New York Times. I'm sure many of you are familiar with his work. Previously worked in the news sections of two scientific journals, Nature and Science. He is also the author of several books, most recently, The Faith Instinct, an account of the evolutionary origins of religion. Thank you very much. Thank you. First, to remind you, I'm Stuart Feierstein. Um I'm a professor here in, in the City of Columbia University, professor of neuroscience in the Department of Biological Sciences at Columbia University. Uh, my work is uh, centered on a molecular understanding of the sense of. Smell the olfactory system, or as I like to put it, I work on a very fundamental human question, which is how do I smell? (laughs) Something we'd all like to know. So, um, uh, let me make just a a remark or two, uh, and then we'll get to um, to questions and discussion. Um, My my remark has to do with the state of of, uh, science in our modern society, and I feel that it's more and more becoming divided between experts. And and this is a big problem, because even for those of us who are, quote, experts, we're only experts in a very narrow area, and everywhere else, we're just all the same kind of ignoramus. Um, I watch with some uh, some trepidation the narrowing, the continued narrowing of my own field, that uh, such that I read fewer and fewer papers in the general field of neuroscience, and more and more in my very specific area. I think it's a fundamental principle of the EST Sloan project that neither expertise nor ignorance is an acceptable excuse for underappreciating the role of science in our modern society. I think it's, we all recognize it's of critical importance in our daily lives, whether it's regarding the physics and chemistry of climate, uh, the uh, computer science and mathematics of cryptography and security, the biology of, uh, stem cells or genes, perhaps many of you saw today on the front page of the business section of the New York Times, a big article on the legal issues now, the legal battle forming over whether genes can be patented or not, something that will be of extreme importance to all of us, and which we need to have some basis of understanding. So these are all issues that confront us individually and as a community, and um, and one form for bringing these things into something of the daylight uh, for us all is... Um, is to use the popular media, of theater, and, and film. Um, and this is what, of course, the Sloan Foundation is up to. In photograph 51, we have an iconic moment in science, the discovery of DNA structure, which leads to appreciation of how it works and the passing down of hereditary uh, uh, characteristics, and as a mechanism for evolution. Uh, somehow or another, through this theatrical production, we can find some way to revisit this iconic moment. We get to relive it, in a way that I think would never appear uh, in a textbook. So, the nature of science, I think, that that the innovative will, after some time, become commonplace. After all, uh, 1953, the word DNA was virtually unknown. Today, you find it not only in textbooks, but in the popular press and in general conversation. So what this play does, I think, is take us back in our imagination, that of the author's imagination, to a time when it was not so generally accepted that it was the secret of life, that it was an even important molecule, let alone the basis of of evolution. And so we were then somehow transported to understand the ignorance that was current in the day that's so hard for us to imagine now. Uh, And I think this way, through this kind of uh, uh, production and presentation, we gain an appreciation for the scientific method, the process, and the human struggle that it so often is. So, this play successfully, to my mind, shows, um... Let's see, what does it show? (laughs) I wrote this, but I don't remember. It shows about the technology and the humanity that went into the greatest discovery, I think, of the 20th century. So, So, my first question will, in fact, be to our playwright, um, uh, it's a really a relatively simple question, but uh, i'm going to make it a little complicated so you'll have some time to think about the answer okay so so the simple question is uh, what drove you to write this play? and the complicated part about it is um, is of course the character of rosalind franklin who who um, when you think about it, has become in some ways uh, an even bigger character. And, and has come to mean so much more and has become so much more complicated posthumously than she was even when she was alive. She's come to be seen for many things uh, that she apparently might not have thought of herself, in fact. Um, feminism, sexism, women, and science, which may or may not have been important to her, may or may not have become important to her as she lived longer. Um, she draws fire from many corners. So it cannot have been a simple or easy choice. Pick this as a character for your play. So why did you do
2: that? Well, I have a pretty simple answer, actually, which is that I was commissioned to write the play and I had never heard of her. And I was, I was given three female scientists to write about. But the, the answer does get less simple because, um, after I wrote the draft of this first play that was about three scientists whose lives had nothing to do with each other, and I did some research on all of them, I, I realized that the part of the play that most uh, that I found most compelling was um, the section about Rosalind Franklin and so I, I asked the commissioning theater if they would mind terribly if I rewrote the play that they had assigned to me and this was a theater in Maryland that had wanted their play to have something to do with Maryland and the other two scientists did um, <laughs> so I, I asked them if I could. Um, Really take away everything that was relevant about it to them, um, and and just write about Rosalind Franklin, um, and they kindly let me do that. Um, but I but I guess to answer your question, what really drove me, what what attracted me to her story is I I think sort of precisely what you were talking about is is how um, sort of complicated a character she is, um, and and what I hope or try to to convey through this this play is that. This is not—it's not a simple story of a victim or um, or someone who was merely uh, facing the obstacles that that the time period uh, set up before her. Um, I mean, I think that that there were both internal and external um, obstacles that, that that Rosalind Franklin faced, um, and that and that to me was what made her interesting. I mean, and on top of the fact that she was a part of one of the greatest discoveries of all time. <laughs> that that helped too.
1: How much did you have to, I mean, of course, you did a, a significant amount of research, so there's research on the character, but then what she did was rather complicated stuff. So how much of that did you feel you had to know in order to know something about the character? Did that matter? I mean, it may not have. Like,
2: you mean to describe the science? Yes. Um, I had to know enough to... Pre- to, to sort of let people think that I knew what I was talking about. right? <laughs> it, it was a daunting task because I, I don't have a science background at all. I was an English major. I never thought I would write a play about a scientist. Um, Will you again? Yeah.
1: Okay. okay. Yeah. Helen, did she learn enough to be convincing <laughs> about oh. the science?
3: Yes, very much.
1: Uh, <laughs> well you could be honest; it's all right.
3: <laughs> I think she did. I think you you portrayed the way uh, somebody doing this kind of work um, would do their work in the lab, um, maybe too much on the microscope, <laughs> uh, because. But I don't actually know because back then probably people spent more time uh, using a regular microscope. But I thought that uh, it was accurate. And I thought that perhaps the the part about Rosalind uh, with the um, x-ray camera and the way she was doing the alignment of the camera, unfortunately, that was something that we did uh, back then, uh, we aligned cameras in that way. Uh, and um, uh, it was dangerous. And I don't think people really fully understood how dangerous it was. I don't, however, think, uh, uh, I, as far as I know, she never got a burn, because that would be the first sign, if is, is she got an X-ray burn. But I think you portrayed uh, that part very well. Um, I think the way in which they were building the model um, of DNA, that Watson and Crick were building the model, um, was... a an accurate way of how people <laughs> fiddle around with models and try to make everything work. And so I think you did a very good job. I
4: think Helen, can we maybe
1: just take a moment here? So, so I don't know how many of you have actually seen the play yet. If you haven't, you really must. Um, But one of the things that's mentioned a great deal in the play is this notion of X-ray crystallography.
5: Yes.
1: Without it ever really being entirely explained, I must say, quite remarkably. Um, So so Helen is sort of well known as as being able to communicate difficult ideas um, in simple ways. So I'm going to challenge her now. I'm going to ask you, can you give us a a very brief primer on X-ray crystallography and why it is so important?
3: So in X-ray crystallography, <laughs> depends on uh, molecules... There will be a
1: quiz, so don't speak yeah. <laughs> to
3: So uh, um, m- molecules, for example, salt, can uh, crystallize in a regular array, and all the atoms are lined up in a regular way. And because of that regular arrangement, when you shoot X-rays through the crystal, you get a regular pattern. And that pattern... Uh, lets you know what actually gave the pattern. It isn't a direct picture such as an X-ray of your arm. It's an indirect picture of the uh, contents of the crystal. Uh, In a single crystal crystallography, you get individual spots which allow you to find out uh, what's inside that crystal. In fiber crystallography, you don't have the full three-dimensional order. You have only a two-dimensional order, so you do not get those individual spots, and uh, for that reason, um, uh, the interpretation can be a little complicated. What was raised in the in the story of DNA is there are two forms of DNA: A form and B form. The A form actually was far more crystalline because it actually did have spots, so. Expert in X-ray crystallography would want to look at that picture because it had a lot more data, and that's why she focused on it. The um, B form of uh, DNA was um, much more hydrated, much more disordered, had many fewer spots, and hence, ironically, which was much easier to interpret. So um, that's why uh, as soon as anyone saw that form, they said yes. But that, that especially uh, at that particular time in history, it was known that that, that particular shape, the cross, um, meant that it was a helix. So um, X-ray crystallography is a, a, a method to find out the detailed structures of three-dimensional uh, molecules.
1: And I, I guess, I, if I can add just one quick thing to that. In biology, we have a kind of a, a mantra which says that function follows structure. That structure dictates function, and that's true from the very molecular, from the very smallest single molecule, all the way up to the whole organism. So the structure of your hand says a great deal about its function. It's the difference between the structure of your hand and the structure of your foot tells you a great deal about the function of those two, uh, those two features, and it's just as true of molecules. So knowing the structure of a molecule tells you almost immediately something about its function. It gives you a big clue to its function. In this case, it was the clue to That's its right. function. Yeah. So it's the very structure of DNA that tells us what the function is. Why it was so so important? Thank you, thank you. Um, and I had another question. Oh, so I had a question for you. That's right. Got off on a tangent there. That happens to professors. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so so Anna is involved in in making a play that that has to deal with very tricky scientific information and making it somehow or another accessible to an audience, this it seems to me is what you do for a living in a slightly different media. And so and so what I guess I just want to ask you about making science accessible to a to a public that seems to have an appetite for it. We have a full house tonight, we had a full house last night, but it's not easy.
4: Um, well, I don't know if I have any uh, words of wisdom. I'm probably sort of too no. close to writing stories every day to be able to yeah. give you a, an outsider's perspective on it.
1: Is that all you're going to say, really?
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, let me let me rephrase the question. How about an insider's perspective on it?
4: Um. Well, I guess first you have to um, decide who's, who's uh, who your likely audience is. So, for a general newspaper, we assume our audience is sort of you, know, you don't have to say well-informed <laughs> members <laughs> oh, of the I public. <clears throat> I think science is a slightly specialist interest. It's perhaps a bit like sports—you have to
1: mm-hmm. um,
4: you have people who have a sort of special interest in science. Um, so then, the, the trick is to try and get as much of the. Uh, um, a, a detail into those stories as you can. And ideally, you will sort of write the story on two levels one level that, that is accessible to the general reader, and the other where you're really trying to speak over the reader's heads to scientists <coughs> to tell the scientists who haven't yet read their copy mm. of Nature or Science exactly what's happening. So, to do that, you have to write in a kind of um, code that sort of slips past the editors who will cross it out <laughs> if they think <laughs> you're trying to put something
1: in <laughs> And is that true for interviewing scientists as well? Um, I mean, do you, do you worry about somehow or another failing them or thinking that, that you failed them, having them think that you failed them, that they said something and now you've taken it and presented it in a way that you feel is understandable and accessible, but which the scientist then feels is somehow or another not really
4: true anymore. Uh, No, I think the the real difficulty for a scientist journalist is to uh, uh, maintain his independence of scientists, and scientists have their own point of view, they have their own paper that they're very interested in. Their particular view is not necessarily right. Many scientific papers are wrong, Mm -hmm. so you need to try and report around the paper by talking to other scientists, And, and if the paper does turn out to be wrong, you will hope that in your original story announcing the discovery, at least you had a a yes-but paragraph somewhere mm-hmm. down <laughs> the, the bottom. So it, it's very hard to be other than just a sort of conveyor belt for good news about science. Yes.
1: What would have been your yes-but paragraph for Watson and Crick?
4: Uh, <laughs> well, that brings up the difficulty of trying to you know, assess science in real time. So you would have gone around to other experts and say, and, "And say, well, what do you think of this? Um, and I guess most, well... Actually, that one was easy because the the you only had to look at the double helix to realize what a convincing structure it was. So most of the experts would have I'm told you this This is an important um, discovery. I'm ashamed to say the New York Times was I, uh, eight weeks late in covering this. I think part. they had
1: it in an early edition and struck it for some other story they felt was more oh important No, I, in I, the later editions. I, I, I think understand it, that to be the story. Oh, I haven't heard and that. And then they finally got it back again, Yeah. So, it's, it's, it's even worse nice. than you thought. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So so, so, what you do, of course, is, is report primarily on current events. Now, here we're dealing with something historical, where there are likely to be now, 50 years later, I suppose, a variety of points of views, even from the eyewitnesses. So, um, so what do we do with that? Uh, um, do you want to talk a little bit about the difficulty of that? And then I think Lynn could probably maybe add to it since she's been so involved in the history of
0: Rosalind Frank.
2: Sure. Um, I mean, I guess I felt, you know, a dual obligation. Um, and one was to tell a story that was mostly or somewhat accurate so that people, people looking at it from a historical point of view um, wouldn't think it was... You know, uh, in another universe um, but but then I think the primary obligation and concern was making it theatrical and making it entertaining and um, and and so those two things sometimes um, uh, there was some tension between them and and I had to you know make some decisions and and one one kind of interesting one that happened along the, the journey of the play I, I had felt that I had to be very uh true to the chronology of events for a long time. Um, when this play was produced out out in LA, um, the there uh Rosalind Franklin went off to Birkbeck after um, after DNA was discovered and she and and she she died when she died in real life. And and for this production, and and it was really sort of a Eureka moment for me because that that second or the kind of the last quarter of the play was really slowing it down, um, in these previous productions. It felt like kind of the, uh, kind of an addendum in a, in a way. And so I realized, or some, a director probably along the way said to me, well, why don't you just have her, why don't you just have it all happened at once? Um, you know, have, have the story sort of, you know, culminate at the same time. Um, and so it, it seemed really wrong to me to do that at the time, but it really helped the play. Um, and, it, and so it's totally wrong. I mean, not it's not at all historically accurate <laughs> yeah. that, that part of the play, for instance. But but I think I think really helps it as a theatrical piece.
1: Lynn, how do you feel well, about that?
2: Yeah, I first got started uh, teaching
5: <clears throat> women in science and trying to cover a lot of women. I was drawn to the Anne Sayre original biography of Rosalind Franklin. I mean, if you read that her book, you get such a sense of Rosalind as a person because she knew Rosalind Franklin very, very well. And with her telling these stories of Rosalind, I got hooked. And then the important thing is when I told her I wanted to research this further, the first thing she did, she you know, after I wrote this, I've been criticized for saying there were any the women in kings there's a reason for that. That's the impression Rosalind gave me. And then when I went there, nobody would give me the MRC report which listed the women, which is how Judson found it. If you want to do this, it's very important that you read Judson's book. You read uh, all These Path to Bill Felix. And you find these women and you find out what the true story is. And uh, so they gave me Pauline Cowan Harrison's uh, email, <coughs> email turn, one person led me the next. So I I spent a lot of time with these women. I spent a lot of time with Gosling, who was a fountain of information. Uh, one of the women at King's most valuable in terms of talking to was a woman named Margaret Pratt North, who was the most organized person I've ever met in my life. When she got her PhD in physics, she decided she didn't want to do it anymore. She became Randall's right-hand person. And if you want to know why
1: Randall got all those grants, I'm telling you it was Margaret Pratt North. Who wrote the grant applications? So you you have access to all of this detail. How does this brook with the production of the play that you watched last night
5: with, with the play which, which I didn't can no, about. which
1: could nowhere near contain all that oh, detail, Absolutely right?
5: not. But
1: there is an essence of something that
5: is critical that Anna captures perfectly, and that is the relationship between Wilkins and Roslin which is absolutely impossible in the lab. They were both sort of on the kindergarten level. <laughs> But in, in, in personal interaction, uh, she annoyed he annoyed her so much because so it was set up that the director of the lab had given his project to her, unbeknownst to him. So Rosalind didn't know that Wilkins didn't know she had his project. Nobody told Wilkins. Nobody told Rosalind. So she's been working on what she thinks she should be doing, just as Anna hasn't portrayed and along comes Wilkin saying, but that's not the way it should be. We should be talking, And you know. And she said, as you accurately portrayed, you know, I would not have come here to work under somebody or with somebody. And she worked very well with several people, but she certainly would have taken an underneath position, subservient so as portrayed in Watson's and other So So uh, the play shows that interaction magnificently, and interviewing Wilkin is one of the most fascinating things. Um, and this has nothing to do with play I mean you couldn't have done the play if you acted and it portrayed Trey Wilkins because he was, what, like so many might say a Toast he was a really nice warm man, he was Uncle Morris to everybody in the lab, he helped a lot of people but he was so shy and she was so intense and argumentative and um wasn't the way he could exist with anybody. So if the two of them talked and she stared in the eyes, he would even run away from anybody else looking at him in general direction. You can just picture it would be impossible for them to have a conversation. And yet, he was drawn to her. I think he was drawn to her personally. Uh, And in fact, except for Watson, every man I spoke to thought she was incredibly attractive. (laughs) And...
1: (laughs) Well, I bet he's not here tonight.
5: (laughs) So I, said that Rebecca, is there. I said that at Rebecca, and everybody laughed. You know, all of a sudden, I said, well, David Sayer," and then you had uh, Gosling, who fought that, and I saw Gosling, and uh, uh, Jeffrey Brown, who was one of the writers, he was talking about how beautiful she was, Jeffrey Brown said she's especially beautiful, when she was angry, her eyes flashed, <laughs> um, it was a whole group, Don Casper, um, it was very consistent, and... Um, that's what I'm well, she
1: wasn't his type, way he put it, and I went into his answer after that. So, uh, <laughs> did, did, did you find this surprising when you got into this, that, that here in the middle of what was supposed to be a scientific laboratory, embarked on the greatest project of the 20th century, perhaps, and doing maybe the most important piece of work there was, that actually it was this sort of kindergarten, if you will? I think the kids, makes that clear. Well, that, but that's one book. But I'm I'm curious as to what what.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, as someone who had no knowledge um, bef- before starting to research this play of the storied story at all, I, I guess I had imagined that environments in in the lab, um, especially in this context, would, would probably. Have have been a bit more civilized in certain ways, especially in England. Um. Well,
1: I must say one of the one, one of the for me as a scientist it's remarkable to see that everybody calls everybody either doctor, miss, or Mister. Nobody ever uses a first, rarely ever uses a first name, and yet they're just they act like children most most of the time. I think one of the remarkable things that we forget that the play brings home again, however, is how young these people were. When this was going on. It's actually remarkable to think that they were all in their mid-20s mid to, I think Crick was maybe the oldest at 36, or maybe Wilkins, at about the same age. So that they were extremely young. And not only were they young, but, but they were working in a field that was quite young. I mean, not a, one of them would have called themselves a molecular biologist. That's what we call them today, is, or call the field as molecular biology. But that term, although around, was not very widely used at that time. And I don't think any one of the characters involved here would have characterized themselves as a molecular biologist. Isn't that right? Yeah. No, what, kind of I,
3: I would, I mean, actually, what I thought was so wonderful about the play was that, and this comes from my own experience in that the play points very clearly to the fact that people do science. Hmm. Science is not done by Robots who are doing calculations all the time and using machines and all that the the real science is done by human beings who are often working with other human beings and trying to make things happen and in any laboratory, there are going to be all kinds of soap operas going on um and I think uh, <laughs> so, so I think that that's. That is is actually the way science is done; has always been done, but for whatever reason, the public has never understood. Well, in general, I would say the public doesn't understand that, and um, there's only now because of plays like this and some other uh, kinds of uh, popular entertainment that we're seeing just now. People are beginning to get the idea that scientists are not some special breed that somehow don't have any feelings and don't know how to... Some scientists work really well with other people. Some do not. Some are lone rangers. Some are really great in collaborations. And I think that's what has to be brought out in, to the public in order to sort of humanize the whole uh, enterprise. And I think that that was a very important
1: point for of course you could make a case. I'm going to try and make this case. You tell me whether it's legitimate or not. That, that Watson's Double Helix book was in many ways the first sort of tell-all book about science and labs. Prior to that, I think the view would have been, well, scientists just wear white coats and go about their business, call each other doctor and Mr. and Miss, and turn buttons on machines and things like that, right? But Watson's was really in many ways the first book to show some, some other side of it, good or bad.
4: Well, it was a very subtle book, and I think it's been widely misunderstood. I mean, it is on the one hand historically accurate, but on the other hand, he was writing it to portray the feelings of a young 22-year-old man and, and not portray his feelings as a mature author when he was writing. So he inadvertently gave rise to much of the myth about Rosalind Franklin by emphasizing the importance of this photograph that Wilkins had uh, shown him. And in fact, although the photograph is very exciting for him, it was a very dramatic moment, uh, its importance in the overall history has been misunderstood. Photograph was very important to Francis Crick, but Crick was not given it by Watson because Watson didn't have it. Mm. Uh, Crick saw the uh, photograph in an annual report, which was <coughs> created by the various units of the Medical Research Council to prevent duplication between them. And, and he came by it perfectly legitimately. I asked him once if, if he thought he'd come into Rosalind Franklin's uh, information in a fair way. And he said, yes, he felt it was fair because the information in the MRC report was almost identical with what she'd given in the public lecture, Mm -hmm. which Watson had attended and to which Crick too had been invited but could not go. So, in a way, a whole mythology has been spun out of Watson's um, book by people who I, particularly by Anne Serre, who you mentioned, who, who who laid the basis for the mythological treatment of this discovery of seeing, of portraying Rosalind Franklin as a wronged heroine, which was almost certainly not Rosalind's view, mm-hmm. and I think stands in stark contrast to the actual historical f- fact. I mean, if you're looking at this from a dramatic point of view, it was very dramatic. You had you had three teams racing for the same discovery. Any odds maker would have backed Linus Pauling at Caltech to have found it. You had the two English teams, uh, one of whom Watson and Crick had nothing going for them but their wits. The other, the team at, uh, at King's College London, was riven by these, uh, these, these two personal dramas. The first of which was that John Randall, the head of the lab, wanted to grab the DNA problem from Morris Wilkins. And his first maneuver was to get a new hiring. And to force Wilkins to give his DNA material, his equipment, and even his technician to the new hire, who of course was Rosalind Franklin. And she made an, this very important technical advance of distinguishing the A and B form. But she was highly obstructive in that she refused to discuss anything with Wilkins, who actually could have contributed a lot to the problem. She spent most of her time focusing on the wrong form, as we now know. She failed to understand many things about the um, structure, and she vastly held up the king's team in this to vital moment of this race. Now the story all ended surprisingly happily, in the the, the the Cambridge team found the answer. There were three papers published in Nature: first by Watson and Crick, the second and the third by by Wilkins and by Franklin. So Franklin got to say in Nature in the same issue as Watson and Crick everything she knew about. DMA, including the publication of her photograph. So, the idea that she was robbed of credit is, is incorrect. It's also incorrect that, that she was discriminated against because she was a woman. So, to come back to Anna's play, although it's very dexterous, it, it fall, it, by focusing on, on Rosalind, it inevitably falls into the mythological treatment of this important discovery and not onto the historical mm-hmm. facts. So if I could raise a further point, a, a play about a historical drama has to have um, a message that is true, I think. And the dramatist has every license to invent conversation, to mix up times and, and places. Of, of course, that, that is their license. But at the bottom line is, it has to be true to some message. And I, don't, I didn't hear a, a true message in the play. Not, uh, I didn't hear a message that corresponded to anything that I know about this discovery.
1: Does anybody want to? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to take a short break. You... <laughs> the
5: person whose face is contorted the most, I, I think that I disagree with you on several points. The most important was the well, Watson book is a magnificent book. I recommend it highly, but it is not an accurate historical portrayal it is important in terms of Rosalind Franklin, as it is what brought her to the forefront. I do not think they treated her properly. There's a lot of literature about that. A lot of people thought that. It is not just that feminist sayer. Um, first of all, in terms of did they get this stuff fairly? And Crick has evolved in this. Watson has never let go of this. You do not hand unpublished data to a competitor. Period. I don't care if the MRC report was not more confidential. That was a mistake, and Randall had an absolute fit. And you should go to the archives and read the 50 letters that Perutz received about his little action there, about handing that thing over. In the early years, only crystallographers knew that there was something wrong with the three papers. They looked at their brilliant, brilliant first paper. And I want to be clear I think everybody deserves credit for this. I did not diminish anybody's contribution in this thing. And then they said, okay, where's the data? Anybody running, we need data for this. Then they look at Wilkins' paper and say, the data isn't here. Then they look at Franklin's paper, and there's the data, but why isn't she acknowledged? And part of that was because of the sneaky deal that was uh, done between Randall, the head of uh, Kings, and Bragg, the head of Cavendish, to cover up the very awkward fact that the data had migrated from one place to the other. And, in fact, Rosalind Franklin had written two active articles with a double helix spelled out, reconciling the A and the B. She did not solve it. She did not do it. She got really close, and she didn't do it. But she deserved to be referenced in their article. And Randall had to know that because she couldn't have sent the active articles off to be received that after, by March 6th, without his knowing that. So I don't think they acknowledged him. If you read systematically, whether it's are the Nobel Prize or the 1954 Methods paper, which I'm glad to quote, if somebody doubts what I'm saying. Uh, anything that is said about Rosalind Franklin, first it's Wilkins, then it's Franklin, and then it is, but of course we didn't really need that then we stereochemistry of models. Um, I do not think anybody really realized that the model was based on her material until the double helix gave a hint of it, and when they were coming up for the Nobel Prize, there's a famous letter that was reprinted in Science with a team of, Jacques, uh, Mano, of Jacobi Minot, and Minot wrote to Crick and said, well, this talk from Bragg, Maybe we should include Wilkins in the Nobel Prize, because he deserved it. And I had that little, me too, if you want to see the letter. And Prince said he definitely deserves it. He did very, very important work getting the structure initially, doing the preliminary work, and at the end doing brilliant work confirming it. But the actual data we used was that of Rosalind Franklin, period.
0: We'll pick it up at the beginning of part two with Elkin and Wade going at each other a little bit more, and then some more general discussion from the whole panel about the play Photograph 51 and about the history of the search for the structure of DNA.